Good morning. You are very patient. Very patient. It's lovely to see you again. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm here for two weeks, so hopefully I'll see you again next week, depending on what happens this week. But you're faithful to your church, so no matter who is speaking, you come anyway. Yeah? Thank you for your prayer. Uh, 50 years ago, many of you will know this in this room, 50 years ago this month, Sergeant Pepper taught his band to play. The 1st of June 1967, the Beatles um, issued uh, probably the most important album in the evolution of popular music. Now, whether you like it or whether you don't is irrelevant. What they did on that album changed so much. They worked, um, they gave up going on the road. They played their last concert in August 1966 in Candlestick Park. And then each of them during the autumn um, of 1966 went their separate ways. They regathered at the beginning of 1967 and they spent five months in the studio. And of course, they had their musical mentor, George Martin, and between them, they took their childhood memories and they took various items that they owned and they created a series of songs around those items. And they created a, a form of music that simply hadn't been heard before. And they, they redefined uh, popular music by bringing together concepts that had not worked well together before or worked at all before. In other words, they were prime movers in the history of understanding and experiencing music. They took the music that existed and they overlaid it with various overlays that were deeper and richer experiences of musical form. They were prime movers in helping the next generation to experience and understand those deeper, richer forms. Similarly, there have been prime movers in deepening the experience and understanding of God's people over history, in understanding and experiencing holiness. And they too have done the very same thing. They took what they received in their generation and they overlaid it with deeper, richer ideas. So as we talk this morning about God being holy, we're talking about a history of richness and development and growth. In other words, in scripture, holiness isn't static. 
it moves. So we're going to think about God is holy. Of course, God in Hebrew thought is, is a given. God is. God exists. There's no explanation given to why God exists, how God exists. And the big question, therefore, for us is not does God exist, but what kind of God exists? And in your series, you've been looking at various aspects. God is truth and various other things that you will be, will be looking at. And first and foremost, perhaps in all of this, is that God is holy. But what does that mean? And what does it mean for me? And who overlaid it with different meanings? And what does it mean now? The history of holiness in the Bible is a progressive story. It's got episodes. It's got development. It's got plot. It's got characters. It's drama. It's life. Indeed, holiness is at the heart of everything in Christianity. It's not worship, and it's not mission. It's holiness. You think in terms of the fact that God is holy. You'll find that places, objects are holy in Scripture. You'll find that when, died, when Jesus died on the cross, at the center of that theological experience, an event that changed everything for us, is holiness. Of course, the people of God are called to live a holy life. And of course, the church is a holy nation. And of course, the Spirit of God is holy. Everything we experience is connected to the holiness of God. Indeed, every other attribute, perhaps, with perhaps the exception of love, is part, an expression of different aspects of holiness. God plays a different album. God has changed in every generation what that means. So what I want to do is look at three passages. The first one is Exodus chapter 3. If you want to follow it, I'll just read a little bit. And we're just going to pause at each one, take a few thoughts and move on. Because the whole question of holiness is immense in Scripture. But I think these three will give you a sense of the evolution, the development of holiness. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, chapter 3 of Exodus, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared him in flames of fire within the bush, and Moses saw that through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone to look, God called to him from within the bush. And Moses, 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 and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy 
background. This is uh, simply an extraordinary story. Here a physical place is called holy. And it's not called holy by people. It's called holy by God. God says this place is holy. But what is meant by holy? Well, the meanings originally come from words that describe being set apart, being separate from, being distinct. It actually comes from a word which means to cut and to make clear and to give a clean cut, a separation that God is different to us cut, separate, it also means bright. So what is meant by holy? That range of words. Secondly, why is this ground holy? God alone is holy in himself. All other holinesses, if you like, are derived from a relationship with Him. This ground is holy because the God who is holy is present. The ground is just dirt. The holiness is the presence of God in that place. This is extraordinary teaching because this is about God revealing himself as what theologians call transcendent. Which means that God is immense and has been prayed and sung this morning. He is awesome. He is holy and he is other. And Moses is told, don't come any closer. So this idea is that God is ascribing to something, physical thing, a meaning of belonging to God. Belonging to God in a separate way. So you have holy ground. But then also in Exodus 9 you've got a holy mountain. In Numbers 3 you've got holy vessels, cups and plates. In Exodus 30 you have holy oil. In Leviticus 19, even holy fruit. All derived from the fact that God is present. This is the first occurrence of the word holy. And it's interesting, it's also holy in the sense that it's a God of activity. Because later on he goes on to say, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying. I have come down. This is about a God who is active. It's not a God who is holy and distinct and completely out of the picture. But a God who comes to earth 
to speak to a single Moses person. To study the holiness of God is dangerous because it brings us into a situation where when we pray for God to be revealed as you prayed in your prayers coming to church or prayed together in a room this morning or prayed wherever you prayed this week for this service that God would be present that God would be here but that God is a holy God an active God a God who does stuff and that God will call us into action but also he will require us to respond to the holiness and so you have a response don't come any closer Moses take off your shoes God reveals something for a reason nothing is ever wasted with God to be in the presence of God is a holy experience God is immense and powerful he holds every part of every universe in his hand and he is pure beyond purity he is infinite beyond infinity he is strong beyond strength he is here beyond our understanding but that God is holy and he says to Moses take off your shoes because shoes of course were objects of, of dirt it's calling us into an understanding that when God reveals himself to us we must respond you are stuck I am stuck because I can't go home today unless I respond to this God in some way in his grace he reveals himself to us we're stuck this isn't like last Sunday or the Sunday before because this God is here and he's revealing himself as holy and what Moses does is he does something physical which has a spiritual meaning and you may do that and I may do that because I don't know really what else to do so at some point before I go I may stand I may sing I may pray I may kneel I may cry I may just be so joyful I may be afraid the second passage is the one wonderfully read to us
in the year the king Uzziah died. Between Exodus 3 and Isaiah 6, there are centuries and there are overlays of meaning all the way through scripture. And when you get to Isaiah 6, it moves into a different overlay. An overlay, if you like, from what's called cultic to moral. Things in the early parts of the Old Testament, you could have a holy object, which didn't require the object to have a morality. But when you get to Isaiah, there is a deep demand for moral righteousness. Holiness requires holiness of life. And so you have a priestly understanding of holiness and you have various groups like the Nazarites, the king and his armies were regarded as holy, even temple prostitutes were regarded as separate and holy, priests were regarded as holy by office, but they could do all these things without necessarily having a moral character. A bit like in our day. I'm sure Pete was talking about post-truth. This idea of you can be in a position but your character doesn't matter. Biblically that's, that's nonsense. It's dishonor. So what we have here is a prophetic view of holiness being overlaid that priestly view of holiness. And so you've got demanded here a life of holiness. You've got demanded here that a life is to be touched by God. In fact, you do get a physical touch in this passage. So the emerging understanding of holiness deepens and this is one of the most powerful, again, scriptures. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple, etc., etc. A very powerful sense that he saw in this, what's called, call narrative. Extraordinary sights. The words are stunning. Seated, high exalted the seraphims in a position of servanthood serving there's a shaking at the presence of God there is a sense of God being known by how he chooses to be known there's a vision of God a sovereign but what kind of sovereign is he he's a sovereign holy God and so again you get this same picture of revelation and then you must respond we are stuck when God reveals himself to us we must respond and so you have a sense of God being other other than us distinct from us I think one of the problems we have in evangelicalism we make God too familiar we'll talk about this next week because the two things go together in a sense holiness and person 
But for now, let's think about this otherness. This God who is immense and powerful. This God who is your God. This God who is holy. And also this sense of radiance. This sense of brightness. This sense of glow that comes from this passage. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. And you read earlier on from Revelation, the next part in Revelation, it actually uses that, those, those phrases from Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That threefold calling, this mystery, there's a sense. But then there is this teaching at the sound of their voices, at the doorposts, the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined from a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me and with a live coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar and he touched my mouth. And he said, your guilt is taken away. Here you have overlaid purity. To live a holy life requires the deep, deep, cleansing of the touch of God and it may be that is the response that's appropriate to you that that cleansing is needed in your heart and so you have the holiness of God related to his sovereignty you have it related to his judgment you have it related to its salvation and we're required to respond. And it is God's action. God sends that messenger with the coal to touch our lips. In other words, what we have here is the whole idea of a vision of God followed by holiness of life. Followed by an engagement with the world. Who am I? But here am I. Go. But you can't put go before God touches you. Because if God doesn't touch you, you have nothing to go with. But you can't be touched by God in a sense unless you see a vision of Him. What the church needs most is that vision of God that touches our lives and sends us into the world. If you skip that, if you just have thinking about God and then you jump to engagement with the world without letting God touch your life, you have nothing to bring. It is that process of vision, holiness and engagement that works. It's quite extraordinary how much Isaiah puts into this. When Ezekiel gets hold of this, when Amos get hold of this, they add even more deeper senses of the call to a righteous, holy, forgiven, cleansed, confessed life. To study God is holy is to respond, is to let God touch, is to say I am unclean ha, and I live among a people who are unclean 
then God says, go. The last scripture is in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says in chapter um, 6, verse 9, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. And here's a directive that says you must uphold the honor of God. That your calling is to pray this and to uphold that honor. As you will know, I'm sure in scripture, the name is the character. To name is to create, express, encompass, embrace the character of the person. It's a very precious thing, a name. Your name is precious. What your name stands for, its reputation, is important to you. To have your name brought into disrepute, you would want to defend your name. You would want to defend the name of your family or the unjust treatment of someone within your family. You would want to defend that name. So a name is a very precious, precious thing. And so by praying this, we pray, we're asking all that you are into all that we are. And so we pray, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, holy, honorable is your name. And we would be praying that as we pray that, that divine character and attributes would be in that. Holy is your name. And also by praying this, we prioritize the honor of God. We say in praying this that above all else, we desire the glory of God. Do you remember John 17 where Jesus prayed? And he prayed right at the beginning of that wonderful prayer that we're allowed to hear. He prayed, Father, glorify your name. The glory of God is the reason why you were created. You're created to praise, to glorify. Do you ever wonder why you're here? That's why you're here. You are created to glorify, to praise God who created you. If you ever wonder why you're converted, that's why you were converted, to praise God, to glorify the God who brought you to conversion. Do you ever wonder why you're called to live a life of moral holiness and correctness and rectitude and good decisions and morality and all of those kind of things within 
relationships as you grow up is because you are called to honor him. And also by praying this, we uh, pray that we would be separate from our own agendas. Hallowed be your name, not my name, not our name, not their name, your name. And so in a sense it, it realigns us. Maybe that's the response today from your heart. Lord, realign my heart to you and let me bring glory to you to honor you I've been full of myself full of all the things I can do I've achieved full of pomposity dressed in humility within the church but deep down inside It's been about me, it's not been about you. I'd like to end by leading us in a prayer. And I'm just going to pray and allow you to pray in that. Please, silent prayer, I think. Come with me in the journey in this prayer, please. It might unstick some of us. You can add your own bits if you feel I'm not getting there. Let's pray together. Our Father, Hallowed be your name in my heart. Hallowed be your name in my decisions, Lord. Some of those decisions are hard for me, but hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name in, in my relationships which need you to be hallowed in them. Hallowed be your name in my studies. Worked so hard for these exams. I'd like to get somewhere but hallowed be your name. Let it be your will. Your name. Hallowed be your name in my preaching here. Let it be you in my leadership here. Let it be you, not me, not us. So exciting to be part of all this, but let it be you. So many things we could do, but let them be of you. Hallowed be your name in my parenting. Help me to shout less, Lord. 
and don't be so tired. Hallowed be your name in my grandparenting. Hallowed be your name in Maya and Zoe. Hallowed be your name in my vision and what I see. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in our land. Hallowed be your name in Stormont. Dear God, please, hallowed be your name there. Hallowed be your name in Westminster, in Brussels, in Washington, in many of the capitals of the world. Hallowed be your name in our church. Hallowed be your name in all those people who just can't be here. But listen to this. In their car, in their home, wherever. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in Syria. Among those believers, hallowed be your name in the pain. Hallowed be your name in North Korea. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name.